every bereaved parent, every grieving person has this little box of ideas that make them feel better about what they're going through. And I also found that small pleasures matter. You know, a cup of tea on a sunny morning and you can feel okay. Now, the grief comes in devastating waves, but they do pass. So you're kind of drowning for air and crying to your chest aches and you got pins and needles in your arms and, and in your feet, but they do pass and you feel better afterwards. It's kind of like a barrel that fills up with water and you have to let it overflow and afterwards you feel better for a time. Hi, Hurt to Healing listeners, and welcome back to season four with me, Pandora Morris. I can't believe it's been nearly a year since I started having these incredibly raw and honest conversations with wonderful guests from all walks of life about their own invisible mental health struggles. Those of you that have been here since the start will know that I myself have struggled with my mental health for many years, and it was only recently that I started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to start this podcast to create a safe space where I could try and help some of you on your own healing journeys. This season is full of more fantastic conversations, and I hope that hearing these will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. Today, I'm speaking to a truly inspiring guest whose journey through grief and healing has been nothing short of extraordinary. He's a father who faced the most profound loss a parent can endure, and he's here to share his remarkable story of resilience. Ben Goldsmith, author of the deeply touching book, God is an Octopus. Ben's world was shattered by the tragic loss of his beloved daughter, Iris, and in the depths of his grief, he found solace in an unexpected place, nature. Through his experiences and his poignant words, Ben discovered the healing power of the natural world a source of comfort and renewal in the darkest of times. In today's episode, we'll delve into Ben's journey of coping with grief, the role of nature in his healing process, and the profound insights he's gained along the way. His book, God is an Octopus, beautifully captures the essence of his transformative journey, and I really encourage listeners to read it. So for listeners that aren't familiar with your story, would you mind filling them in what happened? Yeah, I am... I had children very young, so I was married at the age of 22 with Kate, my ex-wife, with whom I'm very close today, who was 20. We'd been together as teenagers, and we had a baby quite quickly after getting married. So we, we were by far the first of our group of friends to have children. And it was all quite bohemian. We had little Iris strapped to us, you know, um, in the park and off to stay with people at weekends and so on. And um, we lost Iris in an accident in July 2019. So just gone four years, out of nowhere. Our oldest child, she was with a friend in our farm in Somerset. I wasn't there, Kate wasn't there. And she managed to turn a farm vehicle over, just messing around on a vehicle she'd been driving since she was eight or nine years old. I mean, pretty boring kind of utility Polaris off-road vehicle that we used to cart stuff around the farm and round up animals and that sort of thing and she she just messed about and it turned it over and and in a kind of confluence of events ended up pinned underneath it and there was no one apart from her friend who was there to lift it off her i was playing cricket an hour and a half away with my sons and with my nephews and my little team that i play in and got the dreadful call um the, the call that every parent dreads you know, almost from the moment that you have children you're introduced to a life of fear that, that something like this will happen 
and my heart sank and I think I sank to my knees and I was bundled into a car by a friend of mine and um, was rushed back to our family place, Canwood. My ex-wife, Kate, coming from a different direction. Jemima, my wife, coming from a different direction. And no one would pick up. I'd been told there'd been an accident. Paramedics were there. And I called and I called. I called the neighbors. I called people there. No one picked up. And then Kate called me, poor Kate, driving on her own from London. And she said, you know why no one's picking up, Ben? It's because she's dead. And I said, don't say it. Please don't say it. I remember cr crump crumpled in the, in the front seat of the car, her head pressed against the window, wondering how can this possibly be happening? And um, somehow it turned out that we arrived at the same time back at the place. And there was an ambulance and a couple of policemen, a paramedic, a little gaggle of neighbors and things. A little way down the hill in the grass, the dreadful vehicle with its wheels pointing back up towards us. And a policeman said, do you know, are you, are you Benjamin Goldsmith? I said, yes. He said, do you know what's happened here? I said, I think I do. And I, I held Kate with one arm and they told us, your daughter Iris has been killed in an accident. Would we like to see her? There was an ambulance parked and we were, we were guided to the side of, of the ambulance that was open and the paramedic stopped us for a moment and said, we did everything that we could. And I must warn you, she's in a body bag. And, and at this point, you know, anyone who's been through this kind of a moment will remember feeling like it's someone else's life you're watching from a distance. This can't really be happening in my life. And we went up the side of the ambulance and there was this beautiful girl lying there. No obvious sign of injury, a couple of flecks of blood under the nostrils, but really just that beautiful profile, that beautiful hair. Kate said, please, Kate said, nothing you can do. Please, please bring, you know, desperate. But as she was pleading with the paramedic in her distress, we heard the boys, our younger sons, who two years and four years younger than Iris, respectively, arriving with Kate's partner, Paul, and... and um, so we managed to get quickly out of the ambulance and pull the door across as they arrived. I went on my knees and held them and told them the news. And so we had this devastating event, um, the event that is um, that engulfs you in the kind of darkness that you that you can't imagine, you know, a darkness that you can't imagine how you'd even survive. It felt very banal. You know, the the police got me to fill out a form. He helped me to do it. You know, Kate went off to the hospital to see Iris. You know, death certificate issued. You know, the, these things were all very banal. I, I remember thinking at the time, how can something so monumental be so smoothly and easily dealt with by the apparatus of state? And family members gathered, and nieces, nephews, siblings, and this sort of sort of family kibbutz. It felt like a grief kibbutz kind of formed and. We spent the next nearly two months without budging from that place in my, my home in Somerset, people sleeping on sofas. and I think a rotor of friends of mine must have been put together because when I think back, there was always at least one of my old friends always there, keeping the boys occupied, sitting by my side, giving me something to, to sleep properly at night. So that's what happened. We lost Iris, who was a complete star. You know, Iris would have been doing the kind of things you're doing, Pandora. She'd have been making podcasts and, 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 and building things and doing things. She was an academically gifted child. She was very beautiful, very charismatic and, and very good and moral. You know, she was always a mischief maker, but she used her own extreme popularity in every situation to lift up the younger ones and the smaller ones, the weaker ones. She was, 
she was just a very good and vibrant person. It's often said that it's the golden ones that go young, and it's hard not to hold on to that idea that it is often the golden ones that that go young. You know, I, I lost my oldest brother when I was growing up, who drowned, and he was a golden boy. I was eight years old, and you know, my mother lived through the grief that we've suffered. And and I think that um, it is often the special ones that get lost young. It seems. So that's our story. God, well, thank you, Ben, for being so yeah amazingly open and for sharing it. Because I think for any parent who has to endure the death of a child and to go through that grief process, it's yeah, as you said, it's the worst thing that can ever happen to a parent. And I think it's so unnatural as well. You never expect to be predeceased by your by your children and it's just it's yeah awful and I think by telling your story you're going to just bring so much comfort and hope for other people that they can get through it because I think in those early days you just you do go into survival mode and you just think my god this is all a dream and I think when any crisis in life happens you do you're just in that sight suspended disbelief of thinking this just can't be happening and everyone comes to your side and it's that so right we're all going to cope and we're all going to and and then it's the aftermath that's often like the, this is the months later which can be even worse because you're suddenly like okay this is this is it like this is really and as I think as you start to realize that it's real what's happened and Iris isn't coming back and I'm gonna have to go on my own journey to try and get myself in a space where I can process it and deal with it if I can yeah spending time with other parents who'd lost children was very important really from the get-go in fact we had a grief counselor an amazing woman called Kathleen O'Hara who arrived very early on and she had lost her son as a teenager years before I think there was something about seeing how that they had managed to survive gave us something to cling to being with people who understand was was very important I even made a list I remember in 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 the very earliest days I remember making a list on my phone of people I knew in my life who'd lost a child and reaching out to them and saying please help me you know how do I survive this? C.S. Lewis said that, that grief feels a lot like waiting. I remember those, those early months. It, it's like you're always waiting for something to happen, a kind of the anxiety of waiting, but nothing does happen. And the hours are kind of interminable, but the days sort of fly by. Joan Didion also said that, that grief feels like fear. And I, I think it, that's a very apt description. It's like being afraid all the time and it kind of waxes and wanes but never goes away that feeling of fear what i found is that those who are grieving have a little toolkit of ideas and coping mechanisms now i think that they're, they're often kind of psychological tools you know in my case i i often thought you know whilst iris only lived 15 and a half years that that half a year being very important her life was very good you know she never suffered she never had deep disappointment terrible pain, grief. The life she led was arguably better than the lives led by most people who've ever lived on the planet. She was at the top of her game from start to finish. She kind of triumphed in everything she did. You know, it was incredibly vibrant and satisfying time that she spent in this world. You know, that was one little trick I used to think of. You know, the, the, the idea that her death was not probably was not painful she would have been frightened but it would have been quick you know the paramedics said that it's almost the quickest way you can go is to cut off the blood supply to the brain you know you just fizz out it could have been so much worse in so many different ways every bereaved parent every 
grieving person has this little box of ideas that make them feel better about what they're going through. And I also found that small pleasures matter. You know, a cup of tea on a sunny morning and you can feel okay. Now, the grief comes in devastating waves, but they do pass. So you're kind of drowning for air and crying to your chest aches and you you know you, you got pins and needles in your arms and, and in your feet but they do pass and you feel better afterwards it's kind of like a barrel that fills up with water and you have to let it overflow and afterwards you feel better for a time i learned coping mechanisms for others who'd walked the same path including my own mother who in her very kind of own way her own english way which is born in 1934 you know suffered in various different ways during her life I learned from her as well how to cope with this. Yeah, because I was going to say, I mean, having lost a sibling and having a mother who had lost a child, I mean, that must have... I mean, and as you say, they have that very Victorian way of dealing with grief, I think, our parents' generation, and that it's sort of, you know, stiff upper lip and you get through it. But even so, there must have been some advice that she could have given and just her presence and knowing that she had got through it herself must have given you some strength. I mean, the, almost the first thing she said to me was, I know I know it's hard for you to hear this and it, it's even harder for me to say it, but it does get easier. You know, life does return. You know, you are going to be okay. And I remember feeling a sense, almost a sense of anger that she should even suggest such a thing. Why should I be okay? You know, after such, Iris is no longer living, has no longer got the rest of her life to look forward to. It's gone. Why should I be okay? I've had nearly 40 years of life. I didn't feel I wanted it to be okay in a sense. And in fact, for a long time afterwards, for you know, a year, two years, I avoided doing things I felt Iris would have enjoyed because it felt unfair. So trudging along the riverbank looking for signs of beavers with my teenage sons, you know, fantastic, you know, lovely distraction, and but not something Iris would necessarily have wanted to do to the same degree. But but a little kind of cocktail party on a roof bar somewhere in London, you know, I found that unbearable. You know, she should be here enjoying this. She didn't get to do this as an adult. That all felt very unfair to me. Yeah, I think because you, you've spoken and written about that, that guilt and, and feeling the pleasures and the joys and, and, and letting those return slowly. And as you say, even just realizing that, yeah, life will return. And I think sometimes when you're grieving someone it does it feels unnatural it's like yeah but I don't I almost don't want things to return to normal because they shouldn't because there's this awful you know atrocity that's happened and and it's just it feels so wrong what starts to happen in a flicker at first and then more meaningfully after a certain amount of time has passed is that you find that where your grief is is where your ongoing connection with that person is now, I, at the funeral, I kind of dumbly recited a poem, I Carry You in My Heart, by a writer called E.E. E. Cummins. And I, I, I don't even know how I managed to stand up and read it. I certainly didn't understand it. I just survived breath by breath through that day. But with the passing of time, I began to realize that where my grief is in my heart is where my ongoing connection with Iris is. And so you, it's like pressing a bruise. It's, it's when you spend time with that grief and you find it and you meditate on it and you allow yourself to cry, that's where you reconnect and that's where you remember the person you've lost. It's a painful but poignant and very beautiful feeling. When I'm overwhelmed by grief now, I think very much of Iris and I feel close to her and I cry and I feel good afterwards that something special happened to me. Um, and so I think... Um, 
you know, it's, it's sort of the cliche is grief is the price we pay for love, you know, or grief is the other side of the coin from love, you know, and I, th I think that's all true. It's so true. And I think, as you say, you have to sit with that grief and you have to realize that in some way they are still there, whether that's in spirit, whether that's in your heart, but they live on and their memories live on. And, and certain moments, I think they return more than more than others and you do certain things and they're suddenly very much by your side and the grief goes and ebbs and flows, I should imagine. Did you find that it was unexpected when those waves of grief hit you or can you? I mean, in the early weeks and months, it's kind of um, relentless. Anything can tip you over the edge. There was a soaring Ave Maria in the funeral and I was in a dentist waiting room six months later and Ave Maria was played on Classic FM and you know, I dissolved and just managed to get into the bathroom behind the reception before I fell to pieces. You know, it can be almost anything. You know, it's someone of a similar appearance or a similar age across the street having a nice afternoon can trip you over. Mm. But the, the, the space between those waves becomes greater and you become more able to deal with them, especially in the knowledge that they will pass. That's what I found. And the what ifs, because again, that's something that I should imagine in the early stages, especially it's that like, oh God, but what if this had happened different? What if I had not gone and played cricket that day? What if Iris hadn't got the keys to the, the vehicle? What happened if the friend hadn't arrived? And, and all those different contingent factors that played a part. How do you move through that? Yeah, a friend of mine who lost his brother very suddenly, George Frost and his older brother, Miles Frost, you know, very close friends. I'd grown up with them. And Miles died very suddenly from a heart condition that no one knew about at the age of 30-odd. Um, he said to me, he said, that not being able to do anything about it is a great curse now, but it becomes a blessing. And I didn't understand what he meant you know, because when something awful like this happens, especially as a parent you know, the, and as a kind of father in a family, you know, I'm good at fixing problems. I've always been the person people turn to to fix their problems. You, know, you just want to fix it, but you can't because it's in the past and your brain whirs and whirs around th this idea of you know, what if, what if, what if. You know, and, and, and you try to unpick the past by doing that, even though you know it can't be unpicked. And eventually you just reach a state of mental exhaustion and you just surrender to the fact to your powerlessness. And George was right. Eventually, when that moment comes, it is something of a blessing because the only way ultimately to get through terrible things that happen to you is by surrendering to them and recognizing and accepting the universe for what it is and for what's happened and for doing the best you can with whatever situation you're presented with. But it's, it's almost impossible at the start to do that because you can't help but go over and over and over the what ifs. And it's not just the what ifs that might have led to her not dying. It's the what ifs, had she lived, would we be doing today? You know, those are unbearable. But the fact is she didn't live and therefore she wasn't going to live. And therefore I wasn't going to have her on my arm, you know, at a dinner in London. That wasn't going to happen. She wasn't going to go and work at Client Earth and become a barrister for the environment because it didn't happen. And surrendering to what is... I think is the core of surviving these things. It's absolutely at the heart of it. You can't learn that and be told that. You have to find that, yeah, that sense of surrender. And all the spiritual traditions talk of surrendering, you know, in, in one way or another, surrendering to what you can't change. Even Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, it's one of the kind of core steps is, is recognizing what you can't change and surrendering to it. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, 
is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. So how did your process of healing, do you think, begin? And when did you feel ready to just start trying to get your life slowly back on on track? So Iris died at the start of July. And the dates, incidentally, were very strange. My ex-wife Kate lost her father on the 8th of July, 1996. And um, Kate has two siblings, and both of them had their first child on the 8th of July. And on the morning that Iris died, Kate sent me a message saying, I always find the 8th of July so strange. It's the anniversary of my father's death. But the oldest children of both my siblings have their birthday on this day. How extraordinary is that? On the very day that, that, that Iris died. So the dates themselves are coincidental to an extraordinary degree. The fact that it was early summer meant that I was able to spend two months, more or less, with my family, with my friends, digesting this thing and in relative privacy and peace in in the countryside that's where we live in somerset i probably like most people threw myself back into work with too much vigor when i came back to town in in that september and i think by christmas i was slightly frayed around the edges and not coping very well but then we had the lockdowns and the lockdowns were something of a savior for me in the sense that i had no choice but to go back to somerset and stay there and not move but what what i found though is I found that the first rays of light that broke through the darkness always came when I was in nature. I've always been in love with and fascinated by wildlife and nature. And ever since I was a child, I think that's true of all children. Find me a child that isn't fascinated by a frog or a nest of bird's eggs. I think in a lot of people, that love of nature goes dormant somehow, but it doesn't disappear. An apartment which overlooks the park will sell for twice the price of one that doesn't. You know, we do crave on some level contact with nature. It never, it never disappears. And what I found is that sitting at the edge of a pond on the bend of a river that runs f- through our place in Somerset, you know, the humming of life going on gently all around me, the dragonflies skipping the water and the swifts and swallows coming down to drink and that late summer, late evening sunshine and just the, the kind of patterns on patterns on patterns and the kind of beauty of just sitting in nature it wasn't lost on me. And it, it was really meaningful for me just to be able to be in nature. And I, I took to swimming in that pond you know, several times a day and immersing myself in the water. You know, there was kind of refuge in that clay-infused water in some way. Breaking the surface, when I came out each time, I would sort of feel the breeze on my face and just feel kind of held in some way by, by nature. And I, I realized that my love of... The natural world hadn't been a hobby like stamp collecting or train sets or something this was much deeper that we really viscerally need nature for healing and and i think that i really indulged that in in the months after iris died i spent as much time as i could in nature whether if i was in london walking in the park at least twice a day um, when I was at home in Somerset, immersing myself in in the rewilding that we're doing in our farm there that several neighbors and I are doing across quite a large part of an area known as Selwood, planting trees and rewiggling streams and reintroducing missing species and just watching the transformation taking place was that that was where I found not only healing and solace, but the beginnings of joy once again and 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 meaning and so on. What struck me as terribly iniquitous is how little access to real nature people have 
in this country. If you're not rural or privileged, you most likely don't have access to good nature in this country. You know, there isn't much access to the land anyway. And even where there is, there isn't much nature. Britain is one of the most nature-depleted countries on earth. You know, we don't know it. You know, we we go to the highlands of Scotland and we can see a long way in those kind of beautiful but bleak landscapes. We think it's wild and beautiful, but it's it's, it's in fact one of the most ecologically degraded landscapes in all of Europe, which kind of says it all. You know, those neon green fields that you see when you fly into Gatwick or Heathrow and you see green England, you know, that they've been drained of colour and birdsong. That's an issue because I think people need nature we don't really understand the mystery of why they need nature you know science is starting to uncover tiny fragments of the mystery you know we now know when you walk in the woods for example that the trees release compounds and when you breathe those compounds in it lowers your heart rate and it lowers your blood pressure makes you feel better makes you feel happier you know, why do the trees communicate with us in, in that way we, we don't know do they love us i mean why not I, we don't we just don't know but what we do know is that hospital patients heal faster if they can even see nature out of their window. Now, the Japanese health service now prescribes forest bathing universally to patients so that they spend time in nature to speed up their healing process. We know that prisoners, when they spend time growing their own vegetables, are far less likely to reoffend. We know that on a more than physical level, we need to be part of nature and spend time in it. This is something that, that was so very obvious to me when I was suffering the greatest loss of my life the, the the darkest time in my life you know I, I needed to be in nature and that's what i'm devoting a lot of my time to now yeah and doing incredible work with it as well with your all your rewilding and in every treatment center you'll get for addiction and and anything it's all a lot of it is about going into nature taking off your shoes walking on the ground being connected to the earth that mm. grounding and and it's it's a very powerful tool and i think that as you say it's so it's almost so wrong that we've become so detached from nature if, if you live in a city or if you live, you know, not in a rural, even people who live in rural areas who aren't privileged. I mean, in the Isle of, I was in the Isle of Wight this summer and, and there's a project going on about teaching children how to swim who live literally within a stone's throw of the water's edge and have never been swimming before and don't know how to swim. And it's a huge tool. I mean, undoubtedly, it's yeah been transformative for me too. I think I think it's one of the greatest challenges of our time is reconnecting people with nature because the disconnect is so stark. 80% of the world's remaining intact ecosystems are in the stewardship of indigenous people. You know, and that's no coincidence. It's because harmonious coexistence with nature and, and a sense of the sacred in nature is at the heart of their spiritual and their practical lives. And, and it, was, it was Terence McKenna who famously said that the world's remaining indigenous people represent humanity's last best hope and i think he's right we need to learn from the indigenous about their relationship with nature and we need to figure out how to reconnect our own society and and, and ourselves with the natural world i think it's it couldn't be more important this it's not a special interest or a hobby this is central to the future of our civilization um, and i think we see it when people are suffering we see how much they need it and how how much they benefit in terms of healing and feeling better that they derive from spending time in the natural world. And I, th and I think we you know, used the word mystery earlier. And I think nature is a grand mystery. I, I don't, and I, th I think religions are a, a valiant attempt to explain the unexplainable, but it seems to me that nature is, is, is the face or the reflection in some perfect mirror of something bigger that we can't 
conceive of. You know, you could use the term God. And I think that this is what we need to do is we need to reawaken some kind of emotional and spiritual response to our relationship with nature. Mm. Now, a cost-benefit analysis is not going to be good enough. You know, we, we know that there's a cost-benefit analysis to be done. We know that if you restore nature in the hills, then towns beneath the hills flood less. And we know that clean water is dependent upon having healthy nature. We know that nature provides services that's worth money. So, of course, we have to do that, but it's not enough. We need the spiritual reconnection. And so going back to Iris, and obviously nature is hugely connected to Iris, I'm aware of that. And I think it's been a hugely powerful tool in, in your journey through grief and through healing but there was a medium that you went to see after shortly after she died will you tell us a bit about that yeah i mean i i've always been so skeptical about these kind of things i um one of the mothers that i met who'd lost her son as a teenager suggested to me that i go and see a spiritual medium i'd asked her do you feel a sense of ongoing closeness with your son and she said, of course I do. I, I, I believe that he's present still. I don't know what that means. I'm not a religious person, but I go to a spiritual medium once a year. And, and by the way, she may have saved my life. And so I, I took this piece of paper and I remember having kind of adrenaline and nerves before making the call. And I, I called this lady who lived in West London, Dutch lady, and um, said I'd love to come and see her and didn't give her much information at all or any. And, and I went that very afternoon. But I, th this is something that I would never have imagined doing. You know, I, I was, I've never been um, someone who'd given much thought to the bigger questions of spirituality or an afterlife or whether we have a soul. You know, there was always enough magic for me in the natural world around me. I didn't need religion in that way. But of course, when, when you lose someone very close to you, you're immediately cast into a state of searching for some ongoing trace of them. And Anyone who's lost someone close will tell you that you do feel their presence in some inexplicable way. It's hard to kind of articulate or prove because it's so different from everything that we perceive with our senses. But you do feel this ongoing companionship in some way. And at times it can be overwhelming, especially for someone who's never thought of what goes on after death. And so I, um, I, I, I went to see the spiritual medium and I had an extraordinary experience sitting in this lady's front room for an hour and a half in which one way or another, without trying to persuade listeners of what was real and what wasn't, you know, she conjured up a conversation between me and Iris that was deeply meaningful. And I was crying and I had hairs on the back of my neck standing up and it was too much. I mean, she went in, into things that only Iris and I knew. It was Iris there for me in that moment. And it was life-saving for me in a sense as well. And I, I, I remember going blinking into the kind of um, drizzle outside. It was late autumn into the street. And I couldn't believe what had happened to me in that conversation you know, over an hour and a half. You know, she, I called Kate. I said, Iris is still here in some way. She's still here. You have to believe me. And I recounted the conversation to Kate, who was crying down the phone. I don't think things are quite as simple as perhaps one might imagine. You know, the, the, someone sent me a painting not long after Iris died by the medieval painter Giovanni Di Paolo, and it's called Paradise. And it shows the recently departed, rapturously reunited with those who'd gone before in, in a garden of paradise. And I, I remember going to that painting over and over again. It gave me such comfort during the madness of my grief. And I don't think things are, are as simple as the painting depicts. 
But I do believe that we're part of a grand mystery that is simply beyond our ability to understand. And I think that, that human societies and human religions throughout time have tried to explain this through myths and so on. And I think that we don't know a fraction of it. And therefore, I believe with every fiber of my being that Iris and I will be together, but just in a way that is unfathomable to my human mind now. And the medium unlocked a kind of searching on my part. I, I spent time with a rabbi, with my local vicar in Somerset. I went to see a, one of the Sri Lankan monks at the Vihari in Acton. I, I, I explored, I went to see a Kabbalist uh, rabbi in, in, in the Kabbalah center. And I just wanted to understand the views of the big religions on reincarnation, on death, on, on, on a life after death and so on. And I, 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 like I said, I don't know that I have any answers at all, except that there's more. And when you decided to, because again, this I think is also related to nature in a big way, is your experience with Alaska, yeah, which was obviously very, very powerful. Yeah, so some quite surprising people said to me during the course of that first year that I should consider a psychedelic therapy. Now, it's becoming relatively mainstream. You know, U.S. military veterans, for example, dealing with post-traumatic stress are routinely now given psychedelic treatments to help them come to terms with what they've seen and experienced and done treatment for addiction depression bereavement all kinds of issues are now being tried using different kinds of psychedelic therapies and 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 um, i'd never really thought of this before it, it, it isn't, anyone who knows me will tell you that's not very me you know this kind of thing and what i thought towards the end of the first year is if i'm gonna get a glimpse of where iris is now this may be the way you know aya means spirit and waska means vine you know, and, the, and this has been a central spiritual practice for all the people of the Amazon basin for probably 10,000 years. And in fact, if you look at it, virtually every indigenous society from the far north, the Sami, all over the world, have all used psychedelics at the center of their spiritual lives. You know, the people of Britain used to use magic mushrooms, the Celts. It's recorded in the diaries of Julius Caesar, even as recently as ancient Greece, the Eleusian mysteries, you know, the, the, the great and the good would undergo a psychedelic experience drinking a, a, a wine brewed with psychedelic fungi that this has been an enormously important part of human history and um, it's something that's completely bypassed us in the west and had bypassed me and so I decided to take the plunge and it, it's it's no joke this thing I mean it really took a certain amount of courage especially for someone you know in quite an emotionally vulnerable state as I was at the time I, I did quite a lot of research. I found someone who could do it. I traveled with my cousin who also wanted to do it, someone who's no stranger to grief himself. And it's a hard thing to describe. I've tried in my book, which I actually called God is an Octopus, because on a piece of paper that I'd written on as I emerged from this ayahuasca trip, I'd written in big letters, God is an Octopus. And that's why we used that title and Bloomsbury suggested I keep it. But the the, the experience was maybe the most important and meaningful and beautiful experience of my whole life. It, it, words like see and hear and meet and place, you know, they don't cut it because it's a totally different dimension you go to. You know, it's, it's like a kind of lucid dreaming, perhaps, in which you are flooded with waves of benevolent, warm knowing, you know, the knowing, knowing that is already within you, but is sort of brought up in kind of upwellings of affirmation, a sense of bliss, a sense of being part of something far bigger and more mysterious than, than we might realize walking around in our day-to-day -day lives. 
know, a sense that death may well not be what, what it seems to be. And most of all, a sense of profound and um, beautiful gratitude for the relationships that we have in our life. I saw for the first time since losing my daughter, I saw the relationship that we had had when she was alive. And I realized that since her death, all I'd thought of when I thought of her was the unfairness, the injustice, my rage, the accident, the sadness about the whole thing. And suddenly I remembered that little girl, you know, the little looks I used to get across the kitchen table, that cheeky little smile dropping her off at school, the petulance, the kind of her ability to wind me up and, 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 then, and then to observe my often unreasonable reaction. I just saw with such beautiful clarity that relationship I'd been so lucky to have for 15 and a half years in a way that I hadn't considered it since the accident happened. And um, I found myself muttering over and over and you're sort of prostate on the floor, you know, the dribbling kind of in a semi-darkened room with beautiful music and thank you, thank you, thank you, you know, was what I was saying. And um, yeah, I'm so happy that I was encouraged to do that because I don't take anything for granted anymore. You know, I, I'm much more respectful of life, much more grateful for the blessings that I have. You know, I'm I'm much more open to the mystery of, of, of reality, you know, and much more accepting that we really don't know what we're part of. And that we must trust our gut, you know, that the Christians talk of a still small voice within. I think it's, you know, I, I've learned to trust my inner instinct because I think it, it carries a wisdom that perhaps my mind doesn't conjure. So, yes, I did ayahuasca, <laughs> much to the <laughs> horror of most members of my family. No, well, I think, as as you say, I mean, I've been on a psychedelic journey too, and I think there there's that sense, as you allude to, of connectedness that comes from it and, and that ability to have almost that bird's eye view and to suddenly realise what's really important and to have those memories and to just really feel that you're sort of in touch with yourself, finally. It's like that sort of safety with it. And, and as you said, it's indescribable because it's beyond realms of human understanding, really, but you you just are transported to this this world of of clarity yeah i think there are two interpretations of what happens when you when when you undergo a psychedelic experience of this kind i think one is that there is a kind of deep wellspring of wisdom and empathy and memory and love within each of us you know, a place that we perhaps can access otherwise only through sleep and dreaming you know that idea of sleeping on a problem or on a letter you know before wake up in the morning and nothing seems so bad you kind of have the answers and it allows us to access that. Or the more spiritual interpretation is that we are connected by some kind of energetic umbilicus with a collective consciousness, you know, call it God, a kind of mind at large. I happen to subscribe to the second view, but I, I don't think it really matters which one it is. Um, I think that the effects speak for themselves. And I think governments around the world should be on a mission to bring these one-off psychedelic experiences to people who need them. Mm -hmm. So many people are hurting and the clinical results from these trials are just extraordinary. But of course, the, the kind of pharmaceutical industry and the, and the kind of medical establishment are wary because instead of having someone on a lifetime of antidepressants, you only need to administer these things once or twice. Mm. Um, but I also think that psychedelic experiences could be a pathway for reconnecting ourselves individually and collectively with the natural world because it's impossible to do this and not feel a sense of connection with a greater oneness you know it's impossible even for someone like me who'd never been uh, spiritual or religious in my outlook you know you do this and you 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 feel like you're meeting god in some way 
you know, and and I I don't think that is um hyperbolic. I think it's a potential game changer, you know, and this idea that that it should be illegal and punishable with jail or worse that we explore our own consciousness in this way is completely anathema to the idea of a free society and and bonkers. I agree. So will you play us the recording that you have of Iris? Love to hear it. Yeah, so I, I mean, li- like me, Iris grew up with with um with with a love of nature and wildlife, and when she she had a pony called Ben, not named after me, by the way, <laughs> and um, she used to go off riding um, with her friend on 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 their ponies, and one day she came across with with, with her iPhone in her pocket, you know, first phone she'd been given at the age of maybe ten or eleven. She came across a great flock of starlings, and she sent me this video. I'm sat right by the starlings. I'll get them sky. And look, they're going up. Look how giant that is. I was right next to them. So, and as you know, starlings fly like a genie. They 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 lift in in in, in a great flock, which seems to be perfectly coordinated in a kind of genie-like shape that that, that 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 flies up. And and she was in awe of that. And that video has given me such. Um, joy. I go back to it over and over because I'm so happy that she felt that sense of awe and love in the presence of nature and that she thought to record it on her phone and send it to me. And that's why I wanted to play it. No, well, it's beautiful. And, and Ben, you're such a, yeah, and you're an inspiration. And I yeah, just think you're going to help so many people in sharing your story. And it's a real honor to talk to you today. And yeah, just thank you so much for taking the time. Pandora, thank you so much for, for having me in and congratulations on the success of this podcast. It's um, You are the one helping thousands of people by doing this. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Thank you.